Good evening, and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, August 11th, 2021, and I am so thrilled to be together with all of you to be able to study tonight several, uh, three pieces on this week's Torah portion. And the first two pieces that I want to share with you are based on essays by Bailey Newman. Right at the beginning of the Parsha, the name of our Parsha is Shoftim, which means judges, and most of the Parsha is about the judicial system, the sense of justice and how we achieve that within society. And near the beginning of the Pasuk is the famous, famous verse, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. Justice, justice shall you pursue. Okay, it's very important to pursue justice. But why is the word tzedek, justice, repeated? Why is it there twice? So there are many, many, many answers to that question. I want to share with you one tonight that is particularly applicable to every one of us. And it starts with a story. There was once a very poor man. He was living in a small town. And one day while he was walking and begging on the streets, he came across a beautiful silver cup. His prayers were answered and tears of joy began to fall from his eyes. And as his tears fell, something miraculous happened. Each tear turned into a valuable pearl. A miracle of miracles, such riches. This man realized it wasn't just a beautiful silver cup. It was a magic silver cup. If a person cried into this silver cup, his tears became pearls. This was the man's golden ticket for the rest of his life. Now, of course, he wouldn't use the money only for himself. No, he would open an orphanage. He would build a new wing to the hospital. He would implement good for his town. He would create real justice. Yeah, of course, he would like a little credit. Maybe his name on a street sign. Maybe a plaque on the wing of the hospital. And then he tried to force himself to be sad again, to squeeze out a few more tears, a few more pearls. He began to think of all that he had suffered, all that he had endured, years of poverty and the humiliation and the shame. And he began to cry and more pearls piled up and more and more until the story ends with the once poor, now very rich man 
sitting surrounded by an ocean of valuable pearls, weeping helplessly into the cup with his beloved wife's slain body in his arms. It's a horrible story. But the truth is, we all want to change the world. We all want to perform acts of righteousness to do justice. But sometimes we too are at risk of slaying our beloved in the name of gathering pearls. Sometimes we get so focused on being just that we forget that we have to do it justly. It's not just about the end goal. There is a process that God wants from us. Rav Eliemer Blach, one of the great scholars of the middle of the previous century, once said, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdov, the doubling of the word justice, justice shall you pursue, means that the pursuit of justice must also be pursued with justice. Tzedek, Tirdov, pursue justice with justice to achieve justice. We're not merely taught to run after justice. We're told to run after justice with justice. We have to be careful not to slay our beloved in the process. Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdaf. Near the end of our Parsha, the Torah talks about when the Jewish people had to raise an army and go to war. And the Torah tells us that when that would happen, there were a number of people who would be exempted from going into battle. Our rabbis clarify that there are actually two kind, two categories of war. One is a war that is designated by the monarch or by the government. And for that kind of war, there are exemptions. There's another kind of war where God specifically commands the Jewish people to go into war or a war to protect Jews who are in danger. For that category of war, there are no exceptions. The words of the Talmud are, Afilu chosen mechupaso v'kalo mechupasa. Even the bride and groom from their marriage canopy must go to war if they are needed. But in any event, for the kind of war where there are exemptions, where some are able to defer, the Torah says as follows, V'dibru ashotim ala'am lemor. 
The officers would speak to the people, the soldiers who were assembled, getting ready to go into battle, and they would say to them, Who is the person who built the new house but did not yet have the chance to live in it? You should go back home. And who is the person that planted a vineyard but did not yet have the time to harvest anything from it? Go back and return to your house. And who is a man or a woman who has become betrothed to a marriage partner, but they have not yet had the chance to become fully married to each other. Yelech v'yashav lebeso, go back home. V'yasifu hashotrim l'daber helam. Then the officers would continue, they would add on this next condition. V'amru, and they would say, Mi ha'ish ha'yarei v'rachalivav. Whoever here is afraid and of weak heart, go home. Okay? The Talmud in the Mishnah wants to explain to us what's going on with this last category. What does it refer to? Rabbi Akiva Omer, Rabbi Akiva says, A person who's afraid, some people are frightened. A person is not able to handle the rigors of war, the fear, the violence. He freezes. He just, it's overwhelming. To have a person like that in the midst of the other soldiers would put other soldiers in danger, would cause a loss of morale. Go home. Go home. Okay. Rabbi Yossi Aglili Omer. Rabbi Yossi Aglili says, no, it refers to a different type of a person. Not a person who's afraid of the violence of the battle, the strength of the enemy. Rabbi Yossi Aglili Omer, uh, what does it mean when the Torah says a person who is afraid and of weak heart should go back home. A person who is afraid of the sins that they have committed. A person who's afraid, I've committed sins and therefore I'm worried maybe God is not going to protect me in this battle. Maybe I will fall because I don't have the merits to be triumphant, to survive this battle. And so I'm afraid because of my spiritual lowness and the sins that I've committed. Listen carefully. Therefore, the Torah gives all the other categories in order that a person who returns, people might think, well, I don't know why he turned around and went back. Maybe he just got married. Maybe he just built a house. So I've shared this with you, with some of you before. The sensitivity 
in how the Torah hides this category among the other categories. So a person who is afraid because they've committed sins, we don't want to cause attention to that person and everyone's going to watch that person walking back and say, oh, he did this sin and that sin and that's why he's going home. Therefore, the Torah has several categories and no one knows for the people who are turning around and going home into which category they would have fallen. So no one would ascribe the sinfulness of a person to those who return home. Tremendously sensitive. Don't embarrass anybody under any circumstances. Fine. But Rav Menachem Mendel of Kotzk, the Kotzka Rebbe, asks a very obvious question. Wouldn't that apply to everybody? You're telling me that a, a person who's afraid because they did sins is going to go home. Who's not afraid that they did sins? Is Okay, I don't want to talk about anybody on this Zoom call. Maybe you're all completely righteous, Sadiqim. I'll say about myself. Huh. I have plenty to be afraid about if I would have to go into war. Plenty, plenty, plenty. Who doesn't have deeds in their past that they would be afraid to be judged on? And with the bar set so high, you mean the only people who are going to go to war are the people who never, ever did a sin at all? How would they have any soldiers left? A chassid once visited his Rebbe before the high holidays in order to prepare himself for the spiritual magnitude of this upcoming season. And his Rebbe, his teacher, his mentor advised him that he should go home and ask forgiveness from everyone that he had wronged during the past year. And he should forgive everyone who wronged him during the past year. So this chassid, this disciple, went home and he did as his teacher suggested. He came back to his teacher a week later. And the Rebbe said to him, you haven't done it yet. There are still those who you had wronged but you have not yet asked forgiveness from. The chassid went back home again. He tried to introspect. He went to every single person that he had any contact with. He tried to fill his Rebbe's advice. And he just couldn't understand when he returned to his teacher the third time. And his teacher said, you still have not done what I asked. And the young man said, Rebbe, who did I leave out? I asked everyone I know for forgiveness, and I in turn have forgiven anyone who has personally wronged me. Who did I miss? And the Rebbe looked deeply into his student's eyes, and he said, 
did you forgive yourself? For some of us, and when I mean some of us, I really mean all of us, our supreme struggle in life is what Dr. Leo Jung called the most terrifying thing to accept the totality of ourselves, to harmonize within ourselves, not just our light, but also our shadows. So often we can forgive anyone and anything but ourselves. We sentence ourselves to life in the prison of guilt. We endlessly ask ourselves, how could we have been so foolish? How could I have caused such catastrophic damage? And then, all too often, we tell ourselves, we deserve to suffer. We are damaged irreparably. The great Hasidic master, known as the Chidushe Harim, Chidushe Harim writes, if a person committed a serious sin and continuously focus on what he has done wrong, he is in fact thinking all the time of only this act. And where a person's thoughts are, there he is thinking of their sinful act. If a person focuses on this and on the muck into which he one time fell, he who thinks about muck will remain in the muck. What does God gain from that? While thinking of sin, he could be stringing pearls, adding something to the kingdom of heaven. So often, so many of us, we replay these scenes over and over and we get trapped in the loop of our thinking. We fixate on how we could have done it better. We could have done it differently. And mistakenly, sometimes we think that this is productive, but it's not. Aldous Huxley once said, rolling the muck is not the best way to get clean. Bailey Newman says, we don't need to beat ourselves up. Believe me, life does it to us enough already. We have to remember that we are so much more than the worst thing that we ever did. Of course, when we do something wrong, when we make a mistake, we have to do teshuva. We have to do repentance. We have to compensate the person we harmed. We have to ask forgiveness with sincerity. We have to introspect. We have to feel bad at that time 
for what we did wrong. And we have to make a sincere commitment not to return to that sin. And we have to do it with honesty and with humility and with sincerity, of course. But once we do teshuva, we're promised by God that that repentance is accepted. And then we need to learn to forgive ourselves. And now we can understand the answer that the Kutzka Rebbe gives to our question. How is it that any person that has a sin should be exempted from war? No. We need to read the words differently. Hamisyare minhoavero shabiyado doesn't just mean a person who did a sin and they're afraid they're going to be judged because of the sin. Not every person who sinned left the battlefield. Person sinned and they did teshuva, they compensated, they dealt with it, they go on. They don't have to return. The exemption was for a person who, despite having repented authentically, was still distressed was still obsessed with their past transgressions. In other words, even though they had done teshuva, they still felt that their avero shebiyado, that the sins were in their hands, still in their hands. Their sins were still haunting their present being. My friends, I hope you have an open heart to hear this message and to let it sink in. And I hope that I have an open heart because I need to hear this so much along with so many others because this lesson can truly transform our lives. A person who cannot move beyond their past lacks the strength to be a warrior for God. They are stuck in the muck and they are not stringing pearls. The Kotzker's insight reminds us that while we must be honest about our misdeeds, we must examine and confront our past mistakes, regretting what we did, apologizing for our blunders, and then, and then, we must forgive ourselves and step forward into the battle with pride. I'll try to work on this, if you will. Allow me to share one last piece. What I'd like to share with you is based on an essay by Rabbi David Stav, as well as a similar but more extensive essay by Alex Ozar. So our Parsha, Shoftim, which means judges, is, as I mentioned before, largely about the judicial system, how to form 
a just society. And our Parsha ends on a most bizarre note. Last passage of our Parsha is as follows. Ki you're out on the road in a rural area outside of any town and you see, Nebuch, God forbid, a corpse, a dead body. Someone was murdered. No fail basadeh, lying in the, in the way. Lo no da mihiko, and there's no indication of who might have murdered this person. There are no witnesses, there's no testimony, there's no evidence. Someone was murdered. We have no way of finding out who did it. So then what happens is, the elders and the judges of the surrounding towns will go out. They will measure from the corpse to each of their towns. And the town that is the closest measurement to this corpse must perform the following ceremony ritual, which is known as Egla Arufa. The elders of that town will take an Egla, an Egla, a calf, and there is this ceremony that takes place along a river. And all of the elders of the town will gather and they will wash their hands over this calf. And the elders, the judges, the leaders will say, Our hands did not spill this blood. The Einenu Loru, our eyes did not see this. Kaper Amcha Yisrael Asher Hashem. God, now you must atone, forgive your people Israel. And you must get rid of the guilt of this innocent blood. In your midst, because now we have done what is right in God's eyes. And that's the end of the Parsha. What is going on here? When a person is killed, God forbid, and blood is spilled, the Torah insists earlier, nothing provides atonement except for the punishment of the murderer. When the murderer is punished, balance is restored. Now, of course, punishing the murderer doesn't bring the victim back to life. But the aim of the punishment is not just for the sake of the individual victim, it is also, but it's also for the sake of the nation, for society. Punishing the perpetrator is necessary for a just society. But what happens 
when someone is killed, God forbid, and we lack a perpetrator to convict, we don't have a murderer to punish, what do we do about the stain on society in that case? And that's the problem this ceremony addresses. You're walking along the way and a murdered body is found and there's no way to find out the identity of the murderer. Then the elders will measure to the nearest town. Why to the nearest town? Just because it's nearest, why are they responsible? Abarbanel says, were justice in the city as strong and precise as it ought to be, no one would dare commit a murder in its environs. Notice, Abarbanel is not suggesting that the murderer might have come from that town just because it's closest. That's not a logical conclusion. Barbanel is saying, if I'm close to a town and I know how seriously they take their judicial system, no one would commit such a crime in that area. In other words, the city's elders who represent the people, or to use a different term, the government, are responsible for the prevention of murder. They're responsible to prosecute and punish offenders so that everyone understands the disincentive to committing a crime. The leaders, the political leaders, the spiritual leaders, the societal leaders are responsible to provide safe passage on the city's roads. And that means they have to make sure that there's regular maintenance and upkeep and lighting for safety. And to see to it that no one should ever face danger alone. And also to support a regime of public assistance to ensure that no one ever goes so hungry that in their desperation they would turn to crime in order to feed themselves. This is a ceremony, Egla Rufa, after a failure in order to help recreate a safe and just society. And for that purpose, local authorities' involvement is not enough. The Talmud explains not only were the local judges to gather for this ceremony, but the Sanhedrin the great court in Jerusalem would send its emissaries as well. Because an unaccounted for murder is not simply the business of the local government alone. It is everybody's business. It is the nation's business. And at the end of the ceremony, the elders and the judges will declare themselves innocent. Yodenu lo shafhu es Our hands did not spill this blood. Well, first of all, who 
accused you of spilling the blood. I mean, that you have to deny that you did something which you so obviously did not do. But I think all of us hear within those words, true, they did not directly spill his blood. The unknown murderer did that. But the clear implication of that statement, we didn't spill his blood, but we and society are responsible for not doing enough to prevent it. That is on us. When blood is spilled upon our land, we are, and we must publicly make clear that we are all responsible. Such an incident becomes the impetus, according to the Nitziv, one of the great scholars of the late 1800s, the impetus for investigations into the past and resolutions for the future. A great thinker once wrote, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the water. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. That initiative is a prerequisite for creating a just society. And that is the magnificent mitzvah at the end of our parsha of mishpatim, of setting up a just society, the mitzvah of Egla Arufa. My friends, I want to wish you a wonderful evening and a marvelous Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.